Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. My name is Dave. If you're newer to our church, I, it's my privilege to serve as lead pastor here. And uh, as you know, we're in a time of transition. Uh, we have said goodbye to our beloved Pastor Jared and his family as they've taken on a new role at Hope Community Church. We are actively looking for someone to fill those big shoes. Uh, if you know of a great pastor who is standing around looking for a place to serve, please let me know. Uh, thank you, Calvin, for that feature on caregivers. And I, I want to, as, as you shared, Thrive is our church network, and uh, we belong to. It's a family of churches. And I believe Thrive at Work is one of the most important things we'll do as a network. It's one thing to encourage the coming to church on Sunday, but it's another thing altogether to remind ourselves that after church is over on Sunday, we are to bring our faith to the very places where we spend most of our waking hours. And so I really want to encourage each of us to be thinking about that on a regular basis, how our faith is intersecting with the work that we do every day. Uh, I want to just thank God because last night I had a near-death experience, and I'm not exaggerating when I say that. Uh, We spent the whole day down at U of I, celebrating, watching Noah graduate from university. I feel absolutely ancient that I have a kid who's graduated from university already. Um, I still remember the roads on that campus because I feel like I was just there yesterday as a student myself. On the way home, it was probably around 11 at night, we're on the freeway, and I was driving a van um, with Noah full of all the, the college kid stuff, and Elijah and the other rest of the family were in Jeannie's car, And I was in the middle lane, and there was a car to the left of me, just sort of right in front, who suddenly, at 70 miles an hour, swerved and cut me off, almost hit me. I'm like, why did he do that out of the blue? And then we saw another car on our side of the highway coming the wrong way at around 80 miles an hour. And it was a matter of inches and seconds we would have to head on, either with that guy or... I just thank God that Elijah had the presence of mind not to panic behind me. Uh, I've just never seen anything. And then within seconds, we saw two police cars, lights blazing. coming. And I know he was going around 80 because he was passing the traffic coming the other way. I mean, he was was burning down our side of the highway. That was really scary. And I, I just think about how often I get in my car and just drive without thinking, without praying. And yet God faithfully watches over us so much of the time. So I'm just thankful for a number of reasons. First, that I got to see my son graduate. And second, that uh, I'm still alive to tell you the story. We have a lot of our folks out for some weird reason. This weekend, half our church decided to travel. So I'm mindful that we should be praying for our brothers and sisters who are not here and somewhere else, probably warmer or funner than here, but to pray for travel mercies for them as well. As you know, recently, I finished up a series on the Gospel of John. And this morning, I'm excited to launch a new, shorter series before we get into something else that will take us through the rest of the year. The series I'm going to start is called, I don't know if you can see this here. 
this is, let me turn this on. It's called virtue and vice. Virtue and vice. That's a gross picture. The, the apple on the right is disgusting. It's this idea of, well, let me put it this way. If I were to ask you to fill out a list of things that would be titled the seven deadly sins, what would get on that list for you? I'm not going to explain any further. Just if you saw the title, The Seven Deadly Sins, and you were asked with some other people to populate that list, shout it out. What are some of the things that would make it on that list? Greed? Gluttony? Okay. All right. So we've got our Bible scholars. I mean, just think about yourself. Are these really the worst things that in your mind that would top the list of seven deadly sins? What else would end up on there? Pride? All right, either all of you grew up in the Catholic Church or watched Brad Pitt's movie or you're just cheating. See, here, here's the thing about this list. If you saw that movie in 1995 called Seven, raise your hand if you saw that movie. It's, there's no spoilers here because, come on, it's 1995. Um, Brad Pitt and, and uh, Morgan Freeman play two detectives on the, the hunt for a serial killer. And these victims start to show up. They seem clearly related. And the, the killer has left these really grotesque tableaus uh, of it's clearly sending a message. And they realize that each one depicts one of the seven deadly sins. And the idea is that this killer is saying these things are punishable literally by death. They are what's destroying civilization and so on. It's a really dark movie. Um, if you're sensitive, I just saved you a lot of anxiety. You don't have to watch it. That's the whole point of the movie. But what's clear is that the list that that movie is working off of is the same as the list we've gotten today called The Seven Deadly Sins. And I want to start a sermon series exploring these seven deadly sins, but I want to be careful how I approach it, okay? If you look at this movie, and this is one of the movie posters that was available around that time for this, this film, the list as we have it today, it's the same list. And the list that we have today begins with pride, and then it includes envy, wrath, sloth, greed, gluttony, and lust. This, this list has a very rich history. Uh, it was first, it first appeared in written form in something resembling what we have back at around 375 AD. It's written by a guy named Evagrius of Ponticus. And he was a monk who was numbered among this category of men called the Desert Fathers. These are guys who left all the distractions and the, um, the comforts of society to go into the desert and live a very austere, sparse life in order to free themselves of everything that got in the way of a deeper reflection and meditation on God. It was out in the desert that they actually confronted and began to see the truth about their own nature, their own heart. And Evagrius put together a list of eight things. His list included eight things which are toxic to the human soul and which lead us away from our relationship with Christ. His list inspired a, a very important leader in, in the history of the church named St. Benedict to formulate his rules for monks 
who would live similar lives of pursuing God with full-time focus. And so St. Benedict's rule of monastic life um, included a list like this. Later on, Pope Gregory the Great in the late 500s, maybe like 580 AD, uh, around 200 years after Evagrius first published this list, um, he finalized the list and he refined it down to seven. And one of his contributions is he made pride the most important or root sin of the seven deadly sins. And so this list comes to us after uh, over like 1,600 years of thinking in this way, using lists like this in the pursuit of spiritual reflection and spiritual formation. It, It has aided so many Christians in their desire to think soberly about the nature of their hearts and their relationship with God. There's a couple things you're going to notice about that list if you're paying attention. And one of them is that list doesn't look all that deadly to me. I mean, it's deadly, but... If I were making a list entitled The Seven Deadly Sins, I think maybe stuff like murder and rape, racism, I don't know. I mean, there's so many other things that I think would have made the list. This seems like a list of my daily life. It just seems, I, I'm honest, I've told my, my kids this all the time. I am a lazy man trapped in a diligent man's life just screaming to escape at some point. If you left me alone with no responsibilities, I could probably waste seven days before I came up for air just watching things on Netflix, reading books, playing games, and forgetting that I have a life. So sloth is right there in the background of my heart at all times. I think we all wrestle with things like envy, Greed, maybe at different levels. I certainly know that gluttony is an issue because the number one pastime around the end of the year is how am I going to eat less and move more? Is lust an issue? I don't know. Uh, Porn is a multi-billion dollar industry in our country, which is saying something when most of it is available online for free. Is it an issue in our country? Of course it is. So this doesn't, it seems deadly in one sense, but it doesn't seem like the worst things that human beings are capable of. It seems actually like a list of things that are pretty common to the human experience on a daily basis along some gradient. So how is it that a list called the seven deadly sins excludes things as serious as murder, racism, rape, things like that? Well, we, we get a clue at looking at the alternate name that the list was given for many, many years, and to this day, in addition to calling it the seven deadly sins, it was very often called the seven capital vices. I like that term much better. Because I think seven deadly sins, it, it, it's, it's meaningful, but it's a little misleading, in that I'm expecting to find other kinds of things on that list. The idea of capital vices is this. The word capital doesn't just mean the most important. It, it, it's based on the Latin word for head or source of something. And the idea is these are the vices that are at the source or root of most other sins. All the horrible things we do to ourselves and to each other and to God flow out of, at least this was the, the, the claim, they flow out of these deeper roots that we have in our soul. In other words, vices are not just acts of sin, they are distortions, patterns, or preferences, or postures of the human heart 
when it's far from God, that drive us to these other things that do great damage to our relationship with God and with other people and with ourselves. You get that? So if you think about, if, if you were to come up with a list of things, the top 10 worst things people do in life, and the top 10 greatest attributes a person could have, you're now beginning to skate around the edges of this idea. What are the great virtues, the moral virtues, that inform the best of human life in God? And what are the vices that draw us always away from that deeper, richer inner life with our God, our Maker? In fact, when Gregory the Great and later um, St. Thomas Aquinas uh, really established that pride should be, it's rightfully the root of all these other things, these distortions of the heart. It was often, this list was often depicted as a tree, pictorially, where pride was the very fat trunk of the tree, and then out of it, six other limbs grew. These six other distortions of the heart or vices, and then from each of those vices or limbs, all these little branches of the other sins that result from each of these vices started to be depicted. And after a while, some of these guys who sat out in the desert with nothing else to do but think about sin, they came up with really elaborate lists of all the, the child vices of these limbs, the branches that come off of it. And I read some of these, and I was like, man, this is really descriptive of the human story. I see these things in my own life very clearly. But I, I've got to say these, these words as well. The other thing you're going to notice about this list is it's not scriptural in the truest sense. This list of seven things doesn't appear as a list anywhere in the Bible. So I I, I want to hold it in tension a little bit. I, I think each one of these things receives very adequate treatment in the Bible. I think the ideas behind this list of the seven capital vices is very sound biblically. But... A lot of people have rejected it because that list doesn't come to us in any passage of Scripture. There are a couple near misses, you know, passages that come close. There's even one in Proverbs that lists seven things God hates. It's not all these things. But I still believe this list is very helpful. I think it reflects an understanding of the human heart that really can only come from sitting still without distraction and looking deeply at the truth about ourselves. One of the... the points of that pictorial depiction, the the trunk of pride with all these other limbs is this. You can spend your whole life fighting for holiness by trimming all the little branches every day. Why do I do this? i got to stop doing this. I've got to stop doing that. And we have these little pruning shears and we're constantly clipping away the annoying branches of unrighteousness that that pop up in our lives every day. And the contention of this list is if you would actually identify, be clear on the the distortions of our heart that lead us, these appetites of our heart that are wrong, that that pull us in these directions and address that limb and cut that off, all those branches would begin to fall off with it. I don't know if it matters to you to work at your holiness. Now, I don't say that in some sarcastic passive-aggressive, challenging way. I mean, it doesn't feel to me like that is all that important today, even among the clergy. We are living in an era where it seems more like everyone is just ready to own the fact that we're not perfect. And I'm glad for that. I'm glad we're not like, oh, you're going straight to hell for that. 
I think that's the wrong message. But I think we've swung very far on the other side and not very much energy or thought or or effort is applied to becoming more like the character of our God. Even when we think we're standing up for God, we do it in ways that are so off-putting that I think, frankly, would be a disappointment to the God we say we're representing. We come on the shoulders of a long tradition of people who desired deeply to live lives that looked like, resembled the God who made us and saved us. And while it's good that we are very careful to avoid any sense of works righteousness, that our salvation, our acceptance by God is through faith and grace alone, the Bible is clear, God is clear, that we participate with him in the lifelong task of becoming more like his son. I want to say a word about the tension between God's grace and our grit. Because there is this weird tension I feel, and hopefully you feel it too, where I'm saved by grace. God does the heavy lifting in my spiritual life. He regenerates me. He, he makes me new. He makes me alive when I was once dead in my soul. And God does what is impossible for me to do. He makes me a new person inside. There was this old dead nature that only wanted to be dead. And suddenly when I met Christ, something came to life in me. That's good news. But there's also so much scripture that says, now make every effort to do this and to do that. The Lord commands us to do this and to do that. So where is that boundary between what God does for me in his grace and I'm meant to do through my grit? It's right for us to have this tension. Back in in the the 1500s, a, a priest named Martin Luther led a revolution that has come to be known as the Reformation. And we owe him a great debt of gratitude because I think what he did was he tackled head-on some of the abuses and, and distortions in the church that were keeping people far from God and in the bondage to the church's authority. And he said, there is a God who wants to relate to you. And so while I don't think everything they said and did was perfect and right, I really believe that what the reformers did was win back for us this gospel of grace. And nothing we do should ever threaten this idea that when God looks at me and finds me acceptable and righteous, it's not because I did something to add to that. I didn't pad the resume by saying, God, I know your son died for me, but remember that missions trip I went on and how uncomfortable it was? God, I didn't shower for like 10 days. I mean, come on. I'm one of the good guys. We've got to be careful that we don't turn to those things and say, see, I kind of did something that's deserving of your mercy. So that's the God's grace part. But how do we reconcile that with God's clear call throughout Scripture to work hard at our faith and our holiness? Well, it's through. So <clears throat> when God calls us righteous because of what Jesus has done, theologians call that justification. It settles our standing, the verdict about our lives and our destiny. God settles that for us through what Jesus has done. But there's another process at work through the entirety of our human lives that theologians call sanctification. And that is the process by which God, because he has saved us, delights in shaping us more to look like his son, to more closely bear a resemblance to him and his character. 
I think that's where lists like the seven deadly sins or capital vices become so helpful to us, is that they help us in our reflection and our effort towards participating with God and becoming more like Jesus Christ. Often these capital vices are paired with capital virtues. In other words, here are things that are distortions of the human heart, And on the other list are seven things that reflect the nature and character of God, things which we should aspire to. I think that's very helpful to juxtapose the idea of vices and virtues together so that we're not just learning what things we should run from and avoid, but what things we should reach after and embrace because we want to be more like that. This opening message is meant to be an introduction to the series. And so I'm not going to do a a lengthy exposition of any text or anything like that. I'm almost finished, actually, right now. So aren't you so happy? (laughs) You guys are happy. I know you're happy. So I'm just, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read through Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. I'm going to make just one key observation about each section of it. And I want you to, I want to just set the table for the series to come. We're going to do a deep dive into each one of these things to try to understand how, the, how our own broken nature and how the, the enemy of God are constantly at work using these distortions of our own nature to pull us away from God, separate us from the people we love, and in fact even divide ourselves so that internally many of us have no peace, no sense of clarity or peace within our own spirits, because so many of these things have become distorted for us, unchecked. So here's Colossians, excuse me, chapter 3, and I want to read just a few verses at a time and give just a very brief commentary that will set the table for the series to come. Paul writes, Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The thing I want to really emphasize here is that none of our effort matters if we have not been raised to life with Christ. Every effort we will ever make in the spiritual life only has efficacy because Jesus did the most important thing. And here's what I want to say about that. It's not just that one day I trusted an idea and then my destiny was changed, but here's the important thing about the gospel that so many people tend to overlook. Something called new life, a mysterious, supernatural new life, began to take root inside of me. And this should be the necessary marker of a true conversion experience. Is not just my thoughts and ideas and values changed, but I sensed in my deadness of spirit new hungers arising, new yearnings, a new heart. It, it was as if things I never cared about, I suddenly found myself caring about. Do, don't you guys have memories of a period of your life. I I think many of you do. I I know so many of you at a personal level, and I, I remember hearing from you descriptions of that period in your life where it was like things that you once never cared about. Suddenly, you you're developing this hunger, a craving for more of it. 
It was as if something that was once just, I don't care about anything or anyone, suddenly your heart is breaking, compassion is rising. You start to care about things. That newness of life, this mystical, spiritual life that wasn't there before, that's a part of what it means to be saved, to be a a Christ follower. And if that hasn't been your experience, I think it's absolutely critical we cry out to God and say, give me that experience. There are all kinds of theological ways of describing what that is, but I'm just going to tell you, you'll know it when you feel it. Something foreign to you, outside of you, a newness of life is welling up. Now, that may have faded uh, over time, that remembrance of that newness of life, but that new life is still beating in your soul. And if Christ hasn't done that, then all your efforts at disciplining your nature, your behavior, it won't amount to anything. But if Christ has made you alive in your spirit where you once were dead, then your efforts will have great effectiveness. God will honor it, and through those efforts, you will be reshaped into his likeness. And the one thing he does say is, we can't be responsible for producing that new life, but we have every bit of power and authority to decide where we will set our minds. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands or anything, but I've been chewing over this question for myself. How much energy do I expend on managing my thought life? Do I even set my mind on anything, or is my mind sort of just like a a public street? I don't know, just stuff comes in there. I was just sitting here, I didn't know what to think about, and the thoughts came, and I just did whatever my thought. And some of us, that's how our minds look. It just feels like a public train station where anyone who wants to come in out just comes in and out. And what he says is you can actually set your mind in certain directions. What he says is set your mind in the direction where God is, where he's pulling you towards him. Do everything you can to cleave that connection for the things that are pulling you back down to your old life and focus your heart on the things that are pulling you towards God. He goes on to write, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. I think that's pretty clear language. It doesn't, to me, describe the moment we find ourselves in culturally, inside or outside the church, but I think it's very clear language about the kind of way God wants us to live in this world. When he says put to death, it's hard to to express in English just how strong a phrase that is. One one commentator I read, this is kind of, I I can't unsee this image, so let me infect you with it. Sorry, but I I can't get this out of my... He's like, it's like a factory worker who finds that there's this industrial roller press that keeps pulling things in, and his finger gets caught and starting to pull him in, and he's going to lose his life. It's a slow press, so he's panicking. What does he do? And he sees a hatchet next to him. And he goes, either I do something decisive or I'm going to lose it all. 
And so, well, I don't have to connect the dots, and there's kids in the room, but you get the idea. He grabs the hatchet, does what needs to be done, because, and why does he do something that drastic? Did you ever see that movie, 127 Hours? So you get the idea, okay? The phrase is so strong because the cost of sin unchecked is so high. I don't think we've, we've given enough airtime to the destructive, corrosive power of sin in the life of human beings. We now call it pride or crime or immorality or injustice. You can call it whatever euphemism you want, but in the end of the day, God has always called it what it is. It is that distortion and corruption of the human heart that first grieves and offends him. Before we ever sin against each other, we sin against God, but today, the only thing anyone seems to get mad about is when we hurt one another. We can grieve the heart of God all day long, but you can't rally anyone unless it costs other human beings something. But all the things we do to hurt each other begin with us shutting off the authority and the character of God in ourselves. One of the things we're going to explore over this series is the nature of sin itself. What makes a sin a sin? And I think one of the things we'll discover, I hope, over time is that sin is not sin just because it violates some rule, but because at its heart, it represents a rejection of God's rightful authority over us, and because it represents a rejection of God's character. Sin is not sin because it has a a damaging effect on the world or on other people. It does, but that's not inherently what makes sin immoral, is that it hurts people and it hurts the world. In the end, foundationally, sin is sin because it violates the character of God. What is good is what God is. What is bad is what God is not. That's how we know what right and wrong is. It is not a set of rules, but it lies in a person. That is why we ought to be so grateful for the person of Jesus Christ, who encased in flesh and bone like us, perfectly embodied the goodness and the character of God without corruption. In his life, in his heart, what we see is the nature of God if he were a human being. Sin is sin because it violates who God is. And because it violates who God is, when we give ourselves over to it, it inevitably leads to a violation of ourselves and the people whose lives we affect. Before a person ever cheats on their spouse, they have turned their back on the God before whom they have made a covenant. Right? Before you kill someone, you have to turn your back on the God who gives life and who, who claims sole authority over life and death. And you take that into your own hands and you turn your back on God. You cannot hurt your brother or your sister before you first sever in some meaningful way the relationship you have with God who has made you. And if you can turn your back on God, it stands to reason that it's no small leap then, it's no big leap to turn your back on other people. God is perfect. And if we could reject him, I guarantee you, it will not be challenging to reject all the imperfect people who fill the world with you. And so he says decisively, If you leave these things unchecked in your heart, if you don't do battle against them, they will have a tremendously high cost in your life. They will destroy 
the relationship you're meant to have with God, and ultimately they will destroy the relationship you have with the world around you. You could be righteously outraged over all kinds of things, and you will never be a part of the solution. Because at some point, sin left unchecked will destroy every other relationship, even the relationship you have within yourself. I'll close with this idea. Paul wraps up this, and I'm doing so much injustice to this rich passage of Scripture. I hope someday I'll preach again on Colossians, and let's, let's do a full deep dive on this. But he ends with this beautiful imagery of a change of clothing. How many of you love buying new clothes and having something new to try on? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you're like, yeah, that's, that's my jam right there. I enjoy it too. I, I like having something new. I get bored of something. I like having something new to try on. It's nice. And especially if you're filthy, I love that moment at the end of a long, arduous mission trip in a very far away remote place where, in fact, I've had that experience, not showering for over a week. You know where you take your shirt off and it stays in the same shape because your sweat and oil and everything is just caked in? And at the end of that week, you're just like, oh, I can't wait for that hot shower and clean clothing. You know how you love that feeling? That's the image that Paul is painting. Is you once were dressed in filthy garments. You didn't realize because everywhere around you was filth. And so it's just kind of like, you know, in the middle of the trip, you don't think much about it. And then you get to the hotel at the end of the trip. And you're like, we're so gross. The other guests in the hotel walk past you and they go, right? the smell is offensive. And you realize wow, we're disgusting right now. And it suddenly awakens this urgent need to change garments. And that's this beautiful picture he says. is It's like you used to wear these things so comfortably you didn't realize how gross they were. And he's saying, think about that and take off that old garment. And then approach Jesus and put on the new garment. I love that imagery because he's not saying, here's the old set of rules you followed, here's the new set of rules, because it didn't feel like that to me. Before I was a Christian, I was a mess. You guys would never sit here and let me preach to you if you knew me in the days before I knew Jesus. I guarantee it. So don't ask too many questions because let's try to keep this church together. In the days before I knew Jesus, I was a horrible, disgusting, self-centered, immoral human being. I am not proud of that, but I never felt like I was following a set of rules. It didn't feel to me like I woke up in the morning and go, what does the bad guy playbook tell me to do today? I just did whatever the heck I felt like, and I didn't care who paid the price. I hurt so many people before I knew Jesus. I don't think rules are the right way to think about holiness at all. Rules matter, but I don't think they speak to the heart of why we go astray and why we come back to God. It's really more an issue of the heart. And I love this picture of trading old clothing for new because I think that's much more of a compelling picture of what it is that God is inviting us into when he calls us to be made new in our faith. We'll explore what makes sin, sin. And in the weeks to come, we're going to do a deep dive into each one of the things on this list so that we think about what it is that causes our hearts to yearn for things that destroy us and destroy other people. 
I know many of you, sit, where you're sitting, you long for that for yourself. So that's my challenge and invitation as we close, is let's go to the Lord, asking Him to do that this week. And starting next week, we'll just do a deep dive into this list that is so helpful. Would you join me right now? And in, in the, wherever you are right now, spiritually, I'm going to ask you from that place, in your own words, just respond to the invitation I gave. Ask the Lord to give you a new heart, a new hunger, a new commitment to the pursuit of holiness and the rejection of sin. Let's pray about that. And after a moment or two, the praise team will lead us in a closing song. So in the next minutes, don't be mindful of your neighbors. Just get before God quietly in your own heart, in your own voice. Just respond to him. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.